for our time then. Can we return to the portion of Scripture that we read from Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we want to focus basically on the first uh, verses to verse 6 this evening before we look at the teaching of the Lord's Supper on another occasion. We come now to uh, uh, almost a new section in the book of Luke. And here we come to this part where Luke records the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events that lead up to his uh, crucifixion. It's interesting to note that we have four Gospels and every Gospel will deal with the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have four Gospels, as we said, and two of them only will deal with the birth, but all of them deal with the death of the Son of God. And this would remind us that as far as Christianity is concerned, there is no Christianity without the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is essential that we are clear on this matter. That his death was absolutely essential. There would be no hope for any of us here if the Son of God did not come and suffer and ultimately die. To many minds this seems cruel. This seems vindictive. But this is what was necessary because sin is so serious a matter, at least as far as God is concerned, and it had to be dealt in this manner. And it did take the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, to become like us and die, offering up himself that perfect sacrifice on Golgotha. And this is very important then. And that's why all of the gospel writers will dwell on this matter. It's not dealt lightly. Large portions of the scriptures are taken up with this incident. As we have said on another occasion, there are three great landmarks, if you like, in God's calendar. It's creation and then it's crucifixion, and then it is the consummation when Jesus Christ will return. And we want to look, or to begin to look at uh, the crucifixion as it's recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. But before that, friends, I do point, put, it, put it to you that we have uh, three warnings here. Three warnings. I was reading, I believe it's Acts chapter 20, when Paul was saying his farewell to the Ephesian elders. And something that struck me that part of his ministry was to warn. He warned the Ephesians. And this would remind us about the ministry of, the, of um, John the Baptist. When the, the Pharisees came to him to be baptized in the river Jordan. And he begins, who hath warned you? And there it struck me that this is part of uh, 
the role of a, a gospel preacher, of a minister of religion, that he's to warn. He's to warn his congregation of various things as he sees them. And we do have a great example in the Apostle Paul and also the Lord Jesus Christ himself because we looked at Luke chapter 21 and we noticed that when they come out of the temple the disciples were taken up with the construction of the temple its beauty and its splendor and they asked Jesus a question about his coming again and things like that and Jesus said first of all as we noticed watch out that no one deceive you again another warning well friends here we do have before we come to the the Lord's Supper we do have I do believe three warnings for our edification this evening and the first warning that we find here is found in verses 1 and 2 and the heading I've given for this is Beware of the clergy. Beware of the clergy. Verse 1 Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now we're very familiar with the story of the Lord Jesus Christ and what was the run-up to his crucifixion. But these words are staggering. Here we have the religious leaders of the day, the people who represented God, who could trace their ancestry to Levi, who became, whose tribe became the, the tribe where, who were priests, and from that tribe came Aaron, who was the high priest. And here we find these people who could trace their roots right back to Levi. What were they wanting to do? They were wanting to crucify the Messiah. They were wanting to crucify Israel's deliverer. And they, they were the ones above everyone else who should have been welcoming the Messiah. They should have been embracing him. They should have longed for him. And they should have been introducing him to the people. Instead, because of envy, because he exposed their hypocrisy and their shallowness, that they wanted to kill him. What a terrible picture we have here of the clergy of that day, of the church of that day. It was rotten, absolutely rotten. They are the first persons who wanted to kill Christ were the very people who should have received him. And therefore, surely, there is a warning here for us. We find here they were with all their all their garb and all their prestige yet they wanted to kill the Son of God and this would surely warn us that there can be great blindness in the clergy as it was at the end of the Old Testament church so it is today in many places we have to be careful 
People have to be careful where they get their religious knowledge from and instruction from. Too many of us might think that just because a person has been ordained, just because a person has many letters before or after his name, just because he's highly qualified, just because he knows the scriptures, that whatever he says must be right, we cannot take that on board. We must be ones who discern. We must have discrimination. We must be able to question what even the clergy will say to us. That's a clear message. That's a clear warning that we have here. Here are persons who should have welcomed Christ, but they sought to kill him. And they sought to do it slyly, for they feared the people. They weren't going to do it openly. They were going to do it by some clandestine way. There we surely have a warning concerning the clergy. And that warning is still relevant today. It was relevant at the beginning of the Christian church era. As I mentioned, I was reading from Acts chapter 20. Here we have Paul's uh, farewell to the Ephesian elders. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says to the elders of the Ephesian congregation. We find it in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, where we read, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. He's instructing the elders to be diligent about their own soul. Take heed unto yourselves. Go about your task. Feed the flock. God has appointed you to watch over the flock and you are to be careful for them. And you are to realize that people will come into the congregation and they will seek to change the congregation and they will bring false doctrine with them. But even more appalling, even from among the congregation that was there, people will rise up. And they will try to speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. This is an ongoing problem within the church. False doctrine. False teaching. What is the golden rule? Well, the golden rule, you shall know them by their fruits. That's what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount. How do you know who's a real Christian? You'll know by their life. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them about how they conduct themselves. Well, it's exactly the same concerning a gospel minister. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their lifestyle. You will know them by their doctrine. You will know them by how they live. That's how you will know. And you are to measure their doctrine according to the word of God. This is what you are to do. Isaiah says something about this. And it's good advice for every single one of us to take on board. For the minister and for others to take on board. 
we might hear something. It might cause us to have itchy ears. It might impress us. Someone who's a good speaker and is able to present their case. We might be convinced by what they say. How are we going to judge? How are we going to ascertain whether it's true or not? Well, we go to the word of God. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. That is, go to the word of God. Go to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. We are therefore to measure whatever religious teacher or guru or whatever we get our teaching from, whether it's from the pulpit like here or whether like many people today get all of their doctrine and teaching and instruction from the internet, you must go to the Word of God and you must assess it by what the Word of God says. Now here's a problem for us. If we receive information and we are expected to assimilate it and to assess it by the word of God, then we are to know the word of God ourselves. And surely this should stir us up that we would be ever more diligent and earnest concerning our study and our meditation and above all our obedience to the word of God. Thinking about Ephesians. If we, if we think of Ephesians chapter 4. There the Apostle Paul is, is giving them instructions. And he says in chapter 4 verse 14. He says to the Ephesian Christians there. That we henceforth be no more children. Tossed to and fro. And carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men. And cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. The Jewish Old Testament church, the leaders largely were rotten, they were corrupt, they were blind, there was no light in them whatsoever. And the early Christian church suffered from false doctrine and false teaching. And that has not disappeared, it's with us today. How then are we to assess? We are to be no more children. We are to grow up in our faith. We are to make progress in our faith. Ask yourself this question. Are you ever tossed to and fro? Does someone say something to you? You take it on board. Then someone else will say something contrary. And you'll take that on board. And you don't know what is right. That's been tossed to and fro. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. Someone says something to you. You accept it. Someone says another thing. And you accept it. It can't all be right. And therefore we are to grow up in our faith. We're not to be carried about with every wind of doctrine. And we're not to put our hope and our trust exclusively, entirely upon the clergy. We are to be ones who are to be able to rightly divide the word of God ourselves. And this takes work. It takes energy. It takes enthusiasm. It's not for the lazy. It's for the diligent. 
And it's bit by bit, it's precept by precept that we grow up in. But the warning, friends, is clear here. Let us not rely exclusively and entirely upon the clergy. The people did here. Ultimately, they listened to the chief priests and the scribes. And what did they do? They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Well, maybe we don't have that kind of clergy today. But we have clergy who are similar, but in a different way. The clergy here wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. We have many clergy in this land today who find the crucifixion of Christ repugnant. They will never proclaim it. They will tell you all things about the Lord Jesus. They will talk about his, his life and, and the glorious example that he has set down before mankind. And they will try to tell people that you are to live like the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to walk in his footsteps. In other words, they'll tell you, do the best you can. But they'll never tell you that by doing the best you can, you'll never be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ has indeed set before us a glorious pattern and example for us. But friends, if you're to follow in his example, truly follow in his example, you will find that you cannot follow in his example. His is a perfect example. And that's why, friends, we must proclaim Christ and him crucified. Because there's no hope for mankind unless Christ ultimately went to the cross. His life, his perfect life, his sublime teaching, his miracles, all of these things combined couldn't save a single soul. He had to die. These people there wanted him killed. Many clergy today would rather he never died at all because they find it repugnant. And why do they find it so repugnant? They find it so repugnant because it tells us and teaches us and points to the seriousness of sin. The Son of God had to die because of sin. And this is something that's missing in many churches, in many sermons. And I put it to you then, friends. You want someone, you want a minister who will tell you about these things. You want a minister who will tell you that Christ indeed has suffered and died. And Christ is your only hope. And you must look to the crucified Christ. You must have your faith in the crucified one. That one who was a despicable sight on the cross is your only hope of salvation. 
You must take your eyes off yourself. You must look to him. His blood. And the blood represents his life. Was given for sinners. And you must have your faith and hope in him. And something else that many modern day preachers will not tell their hearers. That yes you must trust in Christ. You must trust in what he has done. But you also must know and have experience of what the Holy Spirit has done in you. You know Christ has suffered for you on the cross. But a true hearted Christian knows and has experienced the Holy Spirit working in him. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that quite simply, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. No man shall see the Lord. Because those who are truly in Christ will know the Holy Spirit working in them. The Holy Spirit reveals Christ to the believer. And the believer puts his faith and hope in Christ. But that same Holy Spirit works in the believer. We call it sanctification. And therefore, the true-hearted Christian will know what Christ has done for him. But also what the Holy Spirit has done in him. His life has changed. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. And therefore we want to ask ourselves this. Are you sitting under a ministry? Or are you receiving Christian instruction that impresses this upon you? That you must indeed know holiness of heart. Now this is a difficult one. Because really... The reality is that those who are sanctified and growing in grace are very often the ones who don't realize it. They're uncomfortable with their sin. They see their sin. This is a mark of a Christian. A Christian has come to Christ because he recognizes he's a sinner. And he recognizes his need of Christ. And maybe he's been following Christ for 10 years or for 20 years or for 30 years. And he looks at his life, he sits down, he has a period of self-examination that every one of us should have. And he looks at his life and he somewhat, he despairs. Because when he goes back, he feels that as he looks at his future, uh, looks at where he is now, he's in a worse condition than when he first began. That's the way it is, because the Christian becomes more and more aware of his sin. That's the way. That's what happens. That's someone who's growing in grace. Someone who's becoming more and more aware 
of their own personal sin. Let's put it like this way. Before you were a Christian, in all probability your sin never bothered you. It never really bothered you. But when your eyes were first opened and you saw your sin, then it troubled you. Well, as you go through your Christian life, your sin will still trouble you. And you will think more of Christ than you ever did. He will become more real and more precious to you because you rely upon him and you see your great need of him. That is, friends, growing in grace. That is, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Well, the second warning we have here is a warning of falling away. Falling away. What do we have here in verses 3 and 4? Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. Judas is well known to us. The name is certainly well known to us. But Judas is a beacon. He's a light. He's a lighthouse. He's warning us. Here we have someone who was an apostle. Someone who had an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ along with the other 11 apostles. He was with them day and night. He heard him speaking publicly and privately. He saw his miracles. He was with him. And as he was with them, he was indistinguishable from the other apostles. They couldn't tell anything different about Judas. He used the same words. He did the same things. He preached. He performed miracles. He was just like Peter, James and John and Matthew and the others. But yet here we find that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. This man became the son of perdition. Satan entered into him. He was a great fall. Someone who made a very high profession. Someone you would never think he would fall. He fell. It's a warning to every one of us. Now, some may well wonder about this and it's very good that I will clear it up right at the very beginning. It's clear and obvious to all that he was never really a true genuine Christian. A Christian who was born again by the Spirit of God as you heard last week cannot fall away. Oh, he might fall away for a period, for a season, but he will be restored because the Holy Spirit is in him and it will not be taken from him. But here, when Judas fell and when he apostatized and he did what he did, he revealed that he went so far in his profession, but the root of the matter was not in him. He was never a real Christian. 
He may may have spoken like a Christian. He may have acted like a Christian. He may have been surrounded with Christians. And he heard the finest of preaching. But he was not a Christian. Because a true hearted genuine Christian cannot fall away ultimately and perish. And we can say with divine authority that Judas today is in hell. We don't like saying this, these things about anybody. And indeed a gospel preacher is not to pronounce judgment on people. You don't know my heart. I don't know your heart. Only the Lord knows those that are his. But the Bible tells us he went to his own place. And we're not judging. We're simply recording or articulating what's found in the word of God. Judas is in hell today. Although he preached a fine gospel. And lived for a season as a Christian. But the root of the matter was not in him. This is a warning. We can go so far, friends. We can pull the wool over our own eyes. You can certainly pull the wool over your minister's eyes and the office bearer's eyes and the other members of the the congregation and other people. You can go so far. You can make a great profession. You can be baptized. You can be sitting at the Lord's table. And you can go through all of these things. And yet the root of the matter is not in you. And this is here for us as a warning. That we might examine ourselves. And that we would know that we are in Christ. That we would give our calling and election sure. Judas fell. Perished. It's a real solemn warning to all of us. Well then, thirdly, briefly and finally, we have another warning here, I do believe, and it's related to Judas. It's beware of covetousness. Beware of covetousness. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. You notice the chief priests and the scribes wanted a way to kill the Lord Jesus. And we might say they would be scratching their heads. How are we going to do this? We don't want to be seen with the people doing this because at this time Jesus was well thought of by the people. We don't want to incur the wrath of public opinion upon us. And what do we find? We find one of his own, one of the twelve, going to the chief priests and volunteering to betray his master. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. Why did he do it? He did it, friends, because he was greedy. He did it because he wanted money. Is it not remarkable that he sold the pearl of great price for 30 pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver. He was prepared to hand over the pearl of great price. The one who gives eternal life. The one who forgives sin. Yet he was prepared to do this. Why? Because he was so greedy. And this would be a warning to us therefore. To 
to beware of covetousness. What is that? It's simply having an inordinate desire for something. It's not wrong to have desires for some things. It's not wrong to try to make our way in the world and to use every opportunity that God has given to us to progress and to make our way in the world. That's not wrong. But Judas had a desire for money. And he proved that when he was the one who was in charge of the money bag and he used to help himself from it. And this sin ultimately brought him down. This one sin, he was covetous. He wanted to have his pockets lined with money and he was prepared to betray his master to obtain that money. Paul tells us a warning here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, that could have been written upon the headstone of Judas's grave. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Oh, what sorrows he has today. Oh, what sorrows he'll have forevermore. Because he betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Because he was full of trying to get more and more of the things of this world. The Bible has other instances and other examples for us. We know of Achan. He was made an example of. He coveted money. And when they went to battle... He gathered in gold and clothing and hid it. And he thought he could get away with it. But as a result, he was stoned to death when the Lord exposed him. Ananias and Sapphira in the early Christian church too, they were covetous. They were greedy. They thought that they could lie to the Holy Spirit and somehow they would get off with it. Beware of covetousness and it affects all of us it affects the rich and it affects the poor you know some people have money but they don't love it they have it plenty of it but they don't love it and others who don't have it Love it. So it affects the rich and the poor. Many rich people have plenty of money. They don't need to worry. But they don't love it. Many poor people are scraping from day to day. They haven't got a penny spare. But they covet it. They love money. This is what the text said that I quoted. It's not money itself that is the root of all evil. For the love of money is the root of all evil. This man's soul, this man's priceless soul was ruined because he loved 30 pieces of silver. It's a warning. It's a warning to us all. 
be content. Rely upon the providence of God. Rely upon him. Does he not know what you need? Cry out to God. Give me my daily bread. Will God abandon his people? No. Will he lavish them with luxury and with gifts? Not necessarily. He will give what's appropriate. He knows what we need. And many of us, if we had too much, it would ruin us. So, the third warning. Beware of covetousness. The title for the sermon, friends, is Beware. Beware of the clergy. Beware of them. Beware of falling. You're kept by grace. Beware of covetousness. Amen. And may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to us.